Now turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for our New Testament reading. Sermon text this morning will focus on verses 6 to 10, but we will begin reading in verse 1 for its broader context to remind ourselves of what we had considered last week. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one to ten. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, that is to say, in this body we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Speaking of the resurrection body. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing as God, who has given us the Spirit, as a guarantee. And so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Let us uh, go before him and pray that he would illuminate our eyes to understand his word. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you have given us a word that is infallible and inerrant, that your word is kind and gracious, yet also sobering, as it reminds us of our duty here on earth and the fact that we will give an account on that final day, we ask that through the proclamation of your word this morning, you would prepare us by your spirit for that final day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Did you ever think you would get away with it? How many of you have ever heard that question from your parents as a kid? Do you ever think, or do you ever do something that you knew that you shouldn't have done, and you thought, ah, oh, I won't get caught, and then you do get caught, and now you're found scampering, trying to come up with some excuse, now that your hand's been caught in the cookie jar. Uh, I was talking to my dad this week, and he reminded me of uh, one of my favorite stories I remember my dad telling me as a kid, you know, my, uh, my, fo- or my dad and my uncle uh, both grew up in uh, Key West, Florida, uh, and when my dad was five or six and my uncle was 11 or 12, um, my grandparents, their parents, uh, had gone uh, to the local cleaners to pick up a dress for one of their neighbors. And they brought the dress home and then went out for a little bit, leaving my dad and my brother uh, to their own ways. Uh, and back in that day, if you ever took your clothes out for cleaning, the, uh, the cleaning fluid that was used is apparently highly flammable, as my uncle found out uh, for when uh, uh, my grandparents, their parents left, my 11-year-old uncle decided that he would light up a cigarette and start smoking. 
Uh, And of course, he lit up that cigarette a little too close to the dress. And next thing you know, that whole dress goes up uh, in flames. My grandparents knew that something was up when they came home and found my dad sitting in his chair reading a book. Uh, Of course, the fact being that my dad could not read and the book was upside down was perhaps the first uh, indication that something was amiss. Did you think you'd ever get away with it? I think there's this, this embedded sense of, of longing for justice that we have in our own human constitution uh, to see what was wrong put to right. That we long, uh, we love seeing the bad guys get it. I have a friend uh, in college or in, in seminary who loved watching Law & Order SVU, and when I asked, why do you watch this, uh, almost obsessively the response was, I love seeing child predators get their just desserts. It's not something we only see in uh, adult uh, films or TV shows, but also in kids' cartoons. How does every episode of Scooby-Doo end? The bad guy getting caught and the bad guy saying what? I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for that magey mutt and his pesky friends. There's this cathartic sense of justice that we have where we love seeing justice finally being meted out. So long as it's for the other guy. But then when the spotlight's finally turned on us, what was once a sense of relief now becomes frightening. When the spotlight is turned on us and our own sins are exposed, we are filled with a certain sense of dread. It's a, it's a fact as old as Eden itself. You, you find it with Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned and they got caught hiding in the bushes, trying to cover their nakedness so that the Lord would not see hoping that they would not be exposed. Why do we do that? Why is this something we find so often in our own lives and those around us? I think the answer is rather simple. Many of us live in terms of what it is that we want to do. We live in terms of what we can get away with. Even if we don't cross uh, the threshold, we get as close to the boundary as we possibly can. Rather than living with a different motivation of seeking to please our Savior. There's a big difference between these two, and it's a difference that we'll consider in our passage this morning. Here, Paul reminds us that the Spirit has been given and poured out in our hearts to recalibrate our own priorities, to live in light of the resurrection as we saw last week, but not just the resurrection, that we are now called to live in light of the final judgment as well. Because there's a simple fact that remains, we will each and every one of us have to give an account for every single thing that we have done, be it good or ill, on the last day. So we're considered this manner of living, living in light of the future judgment under three different headings. First, we'll consider the question of absence. You see that here in verses 6 to 8. Secondly, we'll consider our aim in this life, verse 9. And finally, we will consider Christ's appearing in verse 10. So absence, aim, and appearing. For years, ever since I've moved away from home, a decade ago, one of the highlights of my week, probably the highlight of my week, is every Sunday evening when I get home from evening worship, going home, kicking off my shoes, and giving my parents a call. 
Um, I'd, I'd rather talk to my folks than, than just about anybody. Uh, we end up talking several times a week, but Sunday is our designated uh, time to get together uh, via phone uh, and talk and just catch up on what's going on throughout the week. And as great as it is, as wonderful as it is, I'm, I'm glad we live in an age where we have telephones, where I'm able to do that. Can you imagine what it would be like in the 17th century uh, and not be able to do something like that? You think what a great comfort it is to have these, uh, this technology at our disposal, but it also, at the end of that conversation, highlights something. It feels like a, a punch to the gut in many ways. Uh, because as great as it is to talk with my dad on the phone... It's, not as, it's still not as good as the real thing, seeing him face to face. That even though there's a sense in which my dad is present because we're talking on the phone, there's also at that same time a tension of a real absence um, that is felt. I haven't seen him. I, I, we can't sit down and watch TV together. We can't uh, go out and have him buy me a nice fancy meal that I expect him to anytime he comes in town to visit um, we're not able to do all the things that we love, like going fishing together and all that stuff, but we can at least talk on the phone. But even our presence on the phone reminds us of uh, our absence, of our distance from one another. And here Paul gives something of an analogous situation. In chapter 5 of this letter, Paul is considering the death of believers in light of all of the promises of God. That there is this, this longing and this groaning that we have as we considered last week. Our hope is not death, but life after death. The bodily resurrection from the dead. And even while we await the sight of our Savior, Christ has given us His Spirit so that we truly get to, to, get to commune with Christ in a real way. In a way that Christ is truly present but even though we say that Christ is truly present by His Spirit, there is also that sense in which Christ is still absent from His people. It's a tension that we feel uh, throughout the New Testament. Christ Himself, uh, upon uh, right prior to His ascension on high, He gives the great commission to His church and then gives that great promise, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what is the first thing Christ does when He ascends on high? He pours out His Spirit on His church that we might know His presence, that we might commune with our Savior. And yet at the same time, Christ bodily is in heaven. We are still absent from our Savior in one, in one real sense. And so we feel that tension, and it inculcates a deeper longing that that gap would one day be bridged, that we would not only be able to, uh, to, to commune with Christ, to talk with Him on the phone, as it were, but also to see Him face to face. There's a poet a number of years ago that put it like this, that God is at home and we are in the far country. Uh, as Peter puts it in his letter, we are strangers and exiles, aliens from our homeland, a homeland that we have not even seen, that we've never yet visited, that no eye has seen or ear has heard of such a glorious home that awaits the people of God, that will be unveiled, that the curtain will be drawn back when Christ himself appears, but is that, that, that hope for that, that future day that shapes how we live in this life, that our walk and our manner of living should be shaped in light of the final day, a walk that is characterized not by our present circumstances, like Peter when he was walking on the water and he began to sink, 
Rather, a walk that is shaped by our hope in Christ who calms the storm and lifts us up from the drowning sea. I think I've probably mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. I am a proud fifth-generation Floridian. My great-great-grandparents immigrated uh, to to the United States during the the potato famine uh, in the 1850s. You can imagine what it would be like uh, to cross the ocean in the mid-19th century. The constant storms and the waves, the cramped quarters, the fact that there was no land in sight, the fact that you you can't go on uh, uh, the internet in the 1850s. Uh, and, and look on you know, the, the tourism website for the United States of America and see pictures of what awaits on the other side. You're going blind, out into the dark, not knowing what lies ahead. But every day you have your eyes set on the horizon, hoping that maybe tomorrow land will be in sight. I believe that there is a land on the other end of the ocean and hopefully that faith will be made a reality. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow or the next day, but every day there is that longing that that faith will be made sight. And that is the language that Paul uses here in verse 7. That this is the mode of the Christian walk. It is a walk by faith. We are walking towards a destination that we do not see that we do not yet see. But that faith has embedded in it a longing that maybe tomorrow, maybe this afternoon, maybe the end of the week, we will finally get to see the promises of God fulfilled. It's the same mode of walk that Abraham had, that David had, that the apostles had, that our grandparents had, that our parents have, that we have. Is that mode and destination and manner that we are walking. That is the nature of faith. It is scoping your sights on what still lies just over the horizon. Faith is always outward looking. It's not introspective. It's always extrospective. It's outward focused. It is forward moving. It reminds us that this present life is at best an oasis but it is not the final destination. That's why Scripture is replete with so many warnings against being trapped by materialism and material goods, thinking that you finally arrived at your destination. You've confused the rest area for Disneyland. There's something better that awaits. Don't set up shop at exit 232. Keep on trucking. And so Paul is, 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 is giving shape to the nature of Christian faith here. That we are to look forward not simply to death, not simply to that disembodied state, but to life after death. The resurrection of the dead that is to be found on the last day. Again, it creates that certain tension. On the, other, on the one hand, we recognize that death is unnatural. It is unnatural for the soul and the body to be separated so many around us, around us just take it for granted that that's just a natural part of life. And we might say it's a natural part of the fallen order, but it is not a natural part of God's original creation. 
Death is an intrusion. Scripture speaks of death as an enemy that has made its way into uh, this present order through Adam's transgression and rebellion and has set up shop as a puppet king or, or as a tyrant, as a warlord, pretending like he owns the place. It's a real enemy. And death is unnatural. And so that for when everyone dies... Our soul separated from our body. That is unnatural. Think, again, think of the prayer of the saints in Revelation 6. What is it that the saints, even in heaven right now, are praying? How long, O Lord? As great as heaven is, there is still a longing for something, for, for the consummation of God's promises. That our bodies would no longer lie rotting in the grave. So in the one sense, we could say that death is unnatural, so there is a longing for something beyond death. Yet on the other hand, Paul says, well, it's better at least to depart than to stay here. Right? Nobody wants to go to Oklahoma, I don't think. But I have to drive through Oklahoma to get home to Florida. So on the one hand, if I want to go home and visit my folks, I've got to drive through the state of Oklahoma. And I go, well... This, is, this isn't the, the, the last stop along the way, but at least I'm halfway home. And that's how Paul is speaking of death. Death is like Oklahoma. should be the motto for the state of Oklahoma. I hope nobody here is from Oklahoma. Um, I have a lot of friends from Texas, and they have this residual uh, uh, hatred of the state of Oklahoma. So this is for my Texas buddies. Um, but it's just, death is just a rest stop along the way to a final destination. It's not the best thing, but it's certainly better than where we are now because we are one step closer to the fulfillment of God's promises. Not just that, because there is something that really great that does happen for the, for the believer at death. That though his soul departs from his body, his soul does not enter into a state of soul sleep. His soul does not kind of dissipate. Rather, his soul immediately enters the presence of the Lord. And it's the prospect of seeing Christ in the future, even as we are separated from our bodies, that shapes how we are to live now in our present lives. As verse 9 makes clear, where he says, this is our goal, this is our aim. Notice this, what he says his goal is not. He does not say that our goal is to stay away from the Lord. In other words, that our goal is to continue living in this life, continue accumulating as many toys as we can, as many riches as we can, to build up our own name or legacy or business or whatever. Paul says that's not our goal. But neither does he say that our goal is simply to depart, to be with the Lord. Notice this. He actually says whether at home, in the body, or away, in other words, separate from the body, our goal is uh, something different entirely. What is our goal? Our goal is to please Him. Our goal is to please the Lord, whatever our circumstances, be it in life or in death. It's our chief end, to please the Lord, regardless of where we are at our present stage in life. Here we find our heart's deepest longings and concerns. It's not simply to be with the Lord, but our great heart's desires to please the Lord. And the only thing that pleases the Lord is faith. 
to walk that pilgrim journey, to live in light of the promises of God, even though those promises have not um, been, been given their fullest realization, to know that by the Spirit we have uh, the Spirit as that down payment, as that guarantee. It's the engagement ring. It is the title deed to the home we do not yet see. That is the nature of faith. By trusting in the Lord's promises that pleases the Lord. And that is the Christian's goal in this life and in the next. It's to please the Lord. It's a very simple question. How do I please God? It's the question we need to ask ourselves in all that we do. Very simple. No, no complicated mathematical formula or you don't need a PhD in physics to determine what it is and how you are to live it's very simply this, how do I please the Lord in light of the law that He has given His people? How different that is from when we are often, how we often think when we're confronted with temptation. You're given a set of regulations uh, or standards that you have to abide by in the workplace. And what do we often think? Well, how, what can I get away with? How close can I get to the edge before I end up in hot water? There's a saying that um, I used to hear growing up, probably heard it uh, yourself, better to ask forgiveness than permission. It certainly encapsulates that type of thinking. Oh, I'll just do it and get away with it, and uh, we'll worry about the consequences later. How different a mindset is that from, how do I please the Lord and what do I do, and, and what do, I do now? Is what I'm doing here pleasing the Lord? Are my thoughts pleasing the Lord? Are my actions pleasing the Lord? Is my attitude Pleasing the Lord. That's why Paul writes to Timothy, uh, saying this, the aim of our charge is simply this, a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A heart that does strive not to find out what you can get away with, but a heart that seeks to love the Lord with your whole being. A goal to love the Lord, not from a nagging sense of guilt, but out of gratitude for what He has done as our Redeemer. Not in an attempt to earn God's favor or an attempt to manipulate God's hand to tell God, Lord, I've done this for You, now You owe me one. As if God ever owed us anything. Rather, our aim is a love that seeks wholehearted devotion to the One who has promised to deliver us from all of our sin and all of our sorrow. To love the Lord with our whole hearts, even as death looms closer and closer and closer and closer. Not to let our present circumstances dictate our affections or the obedience and duty that we owe our Savior. That in spite of all of our present circumstances, we would be like Job. That righteous man Job who says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that's Paul's concern here. We find uh, him saying to find, that we might find strength and encouragement even when we aren't getting what we want. That our aim is not to please ourselves. Our aim is to please the Lord. And when afflictions press hard against us from without and miseries cripple us from within, we know that there is a day where we'll have to give an account for all that we do, all that we've said, and all that we have thought we see that here in verse 10, where Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It speaks, on the one hand, Paul will speak of Christ's appearing, and here it speaks of our appearing before Christ. 
But what we need to notice here is that the final judgment is not simply something that's reserved for the bad guys, as it were. I think many of us might look and think of the final judgment with great confidence, and and rightly we should. The Psalms see the final judgment in that light, that it is a day of great hope for those who have been oppressed and afflicted that finally the Lord will vindicate my cause even though the courts of this earth have been unable or unwilling to do so. Because the Lord sits on a throne, because the Lord is a king who is righteous and will not be bribed, he will not be manipulated, he will not let anybody off on a technicality. The Lord reigns and rules in righteousness, and what a comfort it is to those who have been wronged, to those who have been sinned against. What a terror it is to those who have done wrong. And it's sobering. The Scripture reminds us that there is none righteous. No, not one. And as Paul says, all of us will have to give an account on the final day. He does not simply say that the unrighteous will appear before the judgment, but the righteous will get to pass go and collect $200 and be on their merry own way. No, he says here, all of us will have to appear before the judgment throne. Paul, all of us. He doesn't even say all of you. Paul says myself included. I have to give an account for everything that I have done. I remember when I was in college, uh, and uh, somebody had given me a copy of Calvin's sermons on the Ten Commandments. I never heard of Calvin before, and I'd also gotten a copy of Luther's commentary on the Book of Galatians. And, and they, both these guys, Luther and Calvin, get into these very things, and it became frightening as I remembered how much of a jerk I was in high school—not just to my friends, but to, to people I wasn't friends with. And four or five years outside of college, realizing I have to give an account for these things, it led to nights where I couldn't sleep. To the point where I had to hunt down certain people, find out who they were, and not being friends with them, it took a while sometimes to say, I was mean to you in high school. I'm asking that you forgive me. Sometimes they forgive you. It's a really great feeling. Sometimes they don't. And yet we're called, we have to give an account for everything. That's why our, uh, uh, the Scripture speaks and, and our confessional standards speak of repenting of particular sins particularly. It's not this just general sense of feeling sorry for what we have done in the past. But as the Spirit probes our consciences, we were reminded of the ways in which we've sinned against others. That while we have time, it's time to seek restitution. It's, it's time to seek reconciliation. Christ himself says that. Over and over in the Gospels, before you even give your offering, go and be reconciled to your brother. This is not just us confessing our sins to a pillow. We are called to confess our sins to the Lord, primarily, but also to seek seek restoration with those whom we've wronged. Think of Zacchaeus, that wee little man, the the tax collector. Why does he tell Jesus when he he climbs up the sycamore tree? Jesus says, "I, I want to meet with you. Let's have lunch. Zacchaeus says, what? I've done wrong. I've restored all the people that I've cheated on my taxes. And Christ says, good, you're not far from the kingdom. You're starting to get the nature of repentance. Because you know that you're now starting to get it. We have to give an account on 
the last day. See, Christ has given us His Spirit to prepare us for glory, to prepare us for the final judgment. And when you are given Christ, you're given all the benefits of Christ. Justification, adoption, sanctification, all those other benefits that flow from our union with our Savior. And hear me out, you are not justified by your works. You will never be justified by your works. You are justified by one thing and one thing alone, by faith alone through Christ alone. Not by your works. None of our works are good enough to merit salvation. Christ freely justifies us by His grace and gives us His Spirit. But those whom Christ justifies, He also sanctifies And so if we look and reflect on our lives and see that we are not bearing fruit that accords with repentance, that if we are not being sanctified, then we have to ask, have we ever been justified? We distinguish between faith and works. You're justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. It's not by works of the law that any man will be justified, Paul says. As Luther puts it, we're justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It is a lively faith that a true saving faith bears fruit. It it manifests itself in a particular way of walking a particular path, of bearing particular fruit. Think of what Christ says, or what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, in that great statement on the nature of our salvation. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. So you can't look back on your life and go, look at all that I have done. None of us can do that. And yet Paul goes on to say, why has God saved us? To what end? It's Ephesians 2.10. So that we might walk in those good works which the Lord has prepared for us beforehand. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved so that we might do good work. And so that if we are not walking the highway of holiness to that celestial city, you have to ask... It's a legitimate diagnostic question. Have I truly been justified? Have I put my hope in Christ or am I continuing to rely on my own good deeds? John the Baptist himself says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And compares the Christian. This is in Matthew chapter 3. Using the language of Isaiah and the prophets that the believer is like a tree that bears fruit. And that that fruit reflects, it shows that it's a tree that is a good tree, a tree with deep roots. Again, using that language of Psalm 1. But if that tree bears no fruit, there's only one purpose for that tree. So he uses firewood for the great fiery wrath to come. John the Baptist says that now the axe has been laid to the root of the tree. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if there is no repentance, if there is no good fruit, then you have nothing to be sure of except for a 
certain judgment on the last day. And Paul says here that we must live in light of that, that all of us will give an account for everything we have done in the body. What you do with your body matters. Be it with regard to sexual sin, be it with regard to sins of the tongue, the things that you say, be it with regard to the sins of your hands, the things that you do, your labors or laziness, any other things, our own thoughts, our affections, we will be judged in light of the moral law of God that has been revealed to us through the Ten Commandments. If any of us says, well, I'm doing pretty good, I'd encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' own exposition of the Ten Commandments and recognize none of us would ever be able to satisfy the divine course of justice by our own good deeds. And yet there is good news. that There is one who has been given to die in our place. Christ Himself who died for our sins and raised for our justification that Christ bearing our sin at Calvary has done so that through faith we might bear Christ's righteousness. That Christ in justifying us declares us to be righteous. But the Christ who justifies also sanctifies. And so by His Spirit, He begins to make us righteous. And so we are called to live soberly in account, uh, in light of this. The fact that we will have to give an account on the final day how seriously we take God's word and the promises that he's given and whether or not we're living in light of those promises. You might think, well, man, this sure is a frightening text. Absolutely it is. We cannot shy away from that. Paul's point here is that judgment is coming. Get ready. I think the fear of the Lord is an underappreciated motivation for holiness in this day and age. And yet the New Testament does not shy away from that. We are to live holy lives because we have to give an account on that last day. So we are supposed to live in light of the final judgment. So you wake up every day and you gauge the things that you watch, the things that you do, the things that you say, the stories that you entertain. You ask yourselves, does this please the Lord? In light of God's Word, and then how do I respond appropriately? That is what it means to live in light of God's Word. Make sure your calling and election is sure, Paul says. Am I pleasing the Lord? And again, the only thing that pleases the Lord is this. Faith and trust in the promises of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you have not left us without an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who having died was raised three days later and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for us, for sinners, that we might know the pardon that comes through the mercy that is found in faith in Christ. And as you have prayed us to as you have called us to pray every day, forgive us our debts. So we lay hold of this command and this promise that you who have been faithful to us in exhorting us 
to confess our sins, will be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we ask that you would cleanse us and by your Spirit preserve us and spur us on as we journey towards that final destination, the great hope of the resurrection of the dead, that day when our faith will be made sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.